0: Hello, my name is Kristen Turner and this is New Books and Me. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a channel of the New Books Network. Religious music can be a source of comfort and release, but also a remembrance of sorrow and loss. In Sense and Sadness, Syriac Chant in Aleppo, published this year by Oxford University Press, my guest, Tala Jarjor, analyzes the Syriac chant sung in Aramaic used by the small Christian Syriani community in Aleppo, Syria. Taking a multi-pronged approach, Jajor undertakes a rigorous musical analysis of the Passion Liturgy, while at the same time exploring the place of this music in the spiritual and emotional lives of the Syriani people. Throughout its long history, the Syriac Church has always been in a marginal position and has endured many instances of discrimination and persecution. The community came to Aleppo after being forced to flee Turkey during World War I. Hanging over the book is the knowledge that since Jarjor conducted her fieldwork, the Syriani have once more been scattered, this time because of the Syrian civil war, which has decimated the region. What began as an ethnography has also become a testament to a religious tradition and community which has been altered forever by violence.
1: Welcome, Dr. Jarjor. I'm so happy to talk to you today. Thank you very much, Kristen, for having me. It's wonderful to be with you.
0: I'd like to start just by letting you set the scene for this book. Can you talk to us about the community that you're talking about and how you came to this topic?
1: Sure. Um, so the community is a, uh, in fact, a very small community who, um, who at the time of um, of my my doing research um, among them were were for the most part living in Aleppo, um, the Syrian city in the north of Syria, which is uh, across the borders from Turkey. Um, the community didn't live in Aleppo all their history. They uh, used to live, uh, in fact. Uh, Right across the borders in a town called Urfa, uh, when they lived in it, and, and it's in Turkey. Um, it's a... Um it's an old um it's an old establishment um and it's uh, it has a very interesting history because it's on the same site as what was once known as uh, Edessa um, which uh, was a as a famous uh, center for early christian learning so um a dialect of Aramaic was um, invented um apparently, in the um, surrounding of Edessa, um, not very long uh, before uh, the Christian era began. And so, and it became a, a very literary dialect. And so the early Christians who lived in that area used that dialect. Um, and the church continued to use um, the, the early texts and, and build on them and create new texts uh, for um throughout its history. And so the chant or the, the, the liturgy of this church is entirely sung in Aramaic. So the community I study are the community of Christians who lived in um, Urfa, who carry the tradition, the early Christian tradition of Edessa, and who brought it with them uh, when they had to migrate, in fact, migrate slash flee um, in the aftermath of uh, World War I. When they all had to pack up and leave, and so they they uh, were uprooted um, uh, with very little warning, and they uh, walked across the borders and they settled. They just lived in in basically in refugee camps in the surrounding of Aleppo for a while, and then they gradually built up the area they were living on, and it became a neighborhood. So it's now known as the Syriani neighborhood, or the neighborhood of the Syriani people. And Syriani comes from the uh, from the language the the. Dialect like Syriac. Um, So they they have this uh, very um, interesting musical tradition, which is an oral tradition. So even though the texts in Syriac uh, in some cases date back all the way to the early uh, writers in Syriac, Saint Ephraim the Syrian, for instance, still have hymns and, and uh, poetry and various pieces that are sung in the church today. Um, and uh, but the music has been passed down entirely orally in this particular community. Um, so this is the so I went to the um, the Syriani neighborhood, the neighborhood of the of the Syriani people in Aleppo, and I did uh, fieldwork there. Um, Unfortunately, because of the war and because of all the the dangers and the destruction and and, um, the terrible state of affairs in Aleppo over the last few years, many members of this community had to leave. Um, So whilst I talk about this community in the book as one big um, entity, um, it no longer is the same. um, And that change has happened in a very short period of time. So this is, um, this is, this is basically the, the general scene. This is where the, the community comes from. They were relatively settled um, throughout, what's, uh, throughout the, the, the three quarters of the 20th century and the first few years of the 21st. And now many of them are um, had to scatter around the world. But the church is still there. Um, the neighborhood is still more or less there. The community isn't in- intact.
0: Before we get into some of the really fascinating things that you talked about with the music itself in the book, I'd love to, again, kind of go above that, above the actual sounds for a moment, and just talk about the worship practices that you discuss. I'm sure that most of our listeners would be most familiar with, say, a Catholic um, worship service. Can you talk about how the Syriac worship practices are different um, than maybe what people might have in mind for um, a typical Catholic service?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, and there's there's no short and quick answer to that um, that gives it um, justice. So I'm going to be very unfair and do a, a very big sort of umbrella kind of answer. Um, but before I do that, I should say that um, um, there's this Syriac uh, or that the churches uh, which are in the plural today that use Syriac as a as a language of worship are many, and they. Um, um, they belong to many denominations, to many Christian denominations today. So there are Syriac Catholic churches and um, there are various sort of uh, throughout the history of, of the church and, and because of many um, uh, issues related to all sorts of um Theological and and, uh, and power related kinds of disputes that have led to various um, schisms in the church. The Syriac speaking church also uh, was split up uh, among various uh, denominational umbrellas. So, so the church I, I the, the particular tradition um, with which this book is concerned belongs to what's called what's known as the West Syrian or West Syriac, which is an Orthodox um, um, uh, tradition, uh, and it belongs to a group of churches that split up um, early on from uh, the Byzantine church. So even when you talk about Orthodox church, you're not talking about the same thing as what you would hear um, in Greece and uh, and Turkey in the mainstream sort of um, larger th- churches so there are all sorts of um, historical theological um, etc uh, differences there but to answer your question with something that actually relates to how I decided to to approach this tradition as a as a story to be told through um, its music, um, is a very interesting um, thing I noticed, and and I wasn't the only one, but to me it was very striking to actually see in the liturgical practice, since you asked about that. Um, This church has many services that include um, reenactments of biblical stories. Uh, So you probably know in the Catholic Church, for instance, about the washing of the feet, um, right, so so there would be a service that actually includes an enactment of a certain kind of washing of a, of the feet of twelve people, done by a senior cleric. So the the Syrian Orthodox Church um, has this. Not all churches practice it, but most of them do. Uh, but. In the same way, it has other kinds of uh, uh, in, in stories that come out of the Bible and make it into worship as small enactments, as small like little dramas, if you will. Um, they're not always happy dramas, but some of but they're all very very symbolic. And in many cases, they are enacted to poems, um, and those poems can have dialogues, and those dialogues can have biblical characters arguing amongst each other it can have women with some really strong opinions it can have you know it 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 dramatizes the story which which is very interesting and then when it when this sort of poetic drama is is staged in the in the service it becomes even more it, it comes to life even more and so this is very much kept in the church not all the churches keep all the enactments but most of them keep most at least the important ones so this is something that I found was unique about um, this particular church and the way the people um, get it, be, be, become engaged um, especially in a place like the Suryani neighborhood where um, and this is one other feature about this community is that the community and the church are all part of one whole um, it's a, it's a, you know, with a, with a W, a, a holistic way of, of living together, of being together, of worshipping together, very much like they did back in Turkey in a small town in the past. Um, much of that was maintained even in an urban um, uh, context in Aleppo. So... The people who are enacting these um, these um, dramaturgical, uh, if, if one wills, um, on on the worship um, stage, quote unquote, are the same people who are in the church and they're members of the same community. So the interaction between the liturgy and the lived. Um, that everyday life is, is incredibly close and strong. And, and for that reason, it has, has, has dimensions that sort of bleed into the spiritual experience as well. Um, so this is a slightly long-winded way to answer your question, but I wanted to answer it in a way that contextualizes it in this particular place.
0: Well, I think that's really important because that is something that you talk about throughout the book, that you can't just talk about this one church, St. George, or this one practice without talking about a much larger um, context. And in fact, you describe in the beginning of the book, you said that um, you were interested in studying, and I'm just going to quote you here, the emotional economy of aesthetics informed by religious belief. And I thought um, that was a really succinct way of describing kind of the goal of the whole book. And I, I, can you talk a little bit about how that goal sort of shaped the work and, um, you know, how you approached uh, the writing and, of this book and the, and the topic itself?
1: What I'm, what I eventually called the economy of, of emotion and aesthetics was something I noticed was going on, and I um and I think about um now as more broadly um in, in more broad in in broader terms in terms of how we you know humans kind of understand music and how we process it. Um, but the reason I I I, I use those terms is was because, in fact, I noticed that there's a there's a very close connection between how people felt um, thought and practiced this music. Um, you couldn't possibly separate one from the others. And when you do, you get into sort of uh, prescriptive um, uh, textual kinds of things that they would only say to, to me because I asked about them, you know, uh, like when I ask about a specific interval, uh, then I get a, I get an answer that's connected to that. But, but usually the answer relates the interval to other things people are doing or, or a song or a melody or, a, or a, or even a whole rite sometimes. So, um, So I noticed that there's an intricate connection between... the way people feel this music, the way they practice it, and how they listen to it and critique it and, and think about it. Um, so I came up with this, with this connection between emotion and aesthetics, uh, which I sort of tried to introduce at the beginning of the book. But, but to be honest, it's something I only arrived to very late in the process because it was, a, it was a result of my trying to think analytically about, well, how do emotions and aesthetics actually work together um, in music?
0: And is that why you chose to focus particularly on um, the passion uh, and the music of the passion time? That obviously, that's a very emotional time for Christians. Is that is that why you chose that? Or did you have other reasons that you thought that Passion Week was a particularly uh, important um, set of services to look at particularly?
1: Well, the, re- the, the timing of my, my fieldwork was very much around um, – Around Great Lent, so I made sure I was there before um, the 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 forty day fast before Easter began, and spent the whole time that whole time of the of the um, ecclesiastical year um, in the church. The Orthodox um, Church generally considers um, Easter to be uh, the major the most important time um, of its uh, of its liturgical calendar, which is actually very interesting because now in the West, most people would focus on Christmas. Uh, when you ask people what's the most meaningful uh, part of uh, your faith, they would probably talk about Christmas, whether it's faith or not. In fact, it, it has become a traditional thing. Um, in a similar way, it can also be a... a Purely traditional thing for people in the Orthodox churches, but um, even I mean, this comes from a from a a, a theological emphasis on on the death and resurrection of Christ as formative in the in the Christian faith. Um, And the time of sadness and this sort of leading to to death is something that is very that was to me a in, in, on many occasions, emphasized by people, so they would say, "Oh, those are the most beautiful um, chants of the year. This is the night that the best time of year." No, and I wouldn't quite understand what they were talking about. I mean, I understood that this is important and and that for some reason it's it's significant. And I understood that theologically, it is the major feast. I mean, Easter is known as the major feast um, in the church calendar, but I had to go and observe. Um, and understand and analyze why. So what's so special about this music? And, and why is it so meaningful to people? And how does that, and does that come through in the music? Apparently it does. It was very striking to me how effective, um, you know, how strong this music came across to people who had nothing to do with the church. But who went and uh, and attended some of these services? Um, invariably, people would come out and say some really strong things um, or talk about having experienced some strong emotions. And even in some cases, when I played some of this music to um, in in other contexts, you know, to to people outside, um, they they always noticed how strong it is. Now. It's true that um, the, that the, the, the commemoration of the death of Christ and the music that comes with that are important and highly uh, emotional in all churches, um, but they're very significant in their in their um, in the. Um, respective contexts of these churches in ways that are different among among them and this is one thing that um, ethnomusicologists are supposed to be looking at because just like anthropologists study how context is um, how a specific thing that people that all people may do in all places has contextual, um, specificity or significance, and that is what becomes interesting to them and worth studying. It's the same thing for us ethnomusicologists. We need to understand why is this important here, and what's uh, what what is it about this particular context that makes it significant in its own set of, of circumstances and uh, and meaning forming um, uh, uh, processes. And so, to me, that that informed, in fact, the economy of emotion aesthetics that I eventually um, used as a way of of explaining this this significance. So yes, the significance is local. um, And in that sense, it is similar to significance being local in other places. But I was interested in why is this significant here? And what can we learn from understanding that form of significance that may be applicable to how we understand music generally?
0: Um, Do you think one reason that um, the music of, of the passion was so powerful for them. And, um, you know, they described as the most beautiful and the most emotional is because of the history of the group itself. I was, you know, you talked at the beginning of this interview about how the Suryani, that these people you're studying had to, flee their homes in Turkey and come to Aleppo in World War One, But I think even before that, this was a group that was under threat. Do, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is it like to study a group that has such a history of dislocation behind
1: them? That's a really good question because um... – the suffering that this church is known to have endured um, throughout its long history. I mean, it was it was uh, frequently marginalized. It was never really associated with uh, with empire. Um, it was at the fringes of empires. It was, um, um, I mean, outrightly persecuted in some cases. Um, uh, theologically, it was considered um, um, just not even Christian very early on and so it, it never was privileged um, uh, in any sense uh, and and in fact uh, and I'm not the only one who says this uh, many historians of the of the Syriac church would say it's it's something of a miracle of history that that this church has survived um, so the the set of circumstances in which people live uh, certainly affects the way they practice and create um, their their um, cultural Acumen and, and then how they pass it on. And in this case, I think it's, um, it's extremely likely that sadness was, uh, was passed down uh, through generations, in part because of these circumstances. But it's also important to remember that sadness and its significance in music is not unique to this Church or to this musical tradition. I mean, it's part of the general aesthetics of the region, and um, uh, some uh, studies have observed it in Quranic um, recitation. Uh, there are even studies about uh, ancient texts where um, uh, laments and weeping are important to um, are, are an important part of the part of the textual tradition. So, it's really difficult to say what comes first but i think it's a it's a combination of things but from my observation as someone who's working in the you know in the present time i have observed how the you know how the emotional significance of this music works for people and some of them have shared even the fact that when they're they're crying for christ they're weeping for the dead christ they're also weeping for their for their dead people some people have said they weep for their parents or they remember their past grandparents some people said they even remember their, their saints and martyrs, and many said that, there are, that when they sing these particular melodies that are associated with Urfa, they mourn the loss of that place. So I think there are layers upon layers of significance, and certainly mourning is a recurring theme. It definitely informed how I approached it in the sense that I decided to focus on sadness, the emotion of sadness in particular. It was also interesting to observe how different emotions were expressed and, and manifested in the music. But that's, that's a wider approach that I didn't spend too much time on in, the, in this book. This book was particularly about sadness.
0: You bring up that um, this that sadness as an emotion in music is kind of endemic to the region, um, as well as perhaps being unique in some special way to this particular community because of their long history, and and that makes me think of, of another um, dynamic in the region, which is the relationship between uh, or or between men and women or about gender in in the Middle East. Um, certainly, I think of in Syria, that there's kind of a pretty deep separation between the roles of men and women and, uh, you know, their, the ways that they can express themselves publicly and, and um, interact during public something public like a worship service. Can you talk about what the role of women in particular
1: are in this uh, community um, that you've studied? Well, women are a very important part of this community. In some places, they're uh, they're more visible than um, in others, and and that changes based on the the context. So, in an urban uh, space, um, there is no issue with uh, segregation. In fact, in some places, in rural spaces, seg- segregation isn't doesn't exist. Um, so, this is this is di- different. This is um, I mean, we need to we need to get into the specificity of a of a particular place to talk about that. Uh, but generally, historically, women have had a very important role in this church. In fact, I mentioned St. Ephraim, this very early uh, church doctor who, um, who is uh, known to have established the first uh, women's choir in the church um a girl squire uh, and he gave them an important role in the t- in singing uh, pieces that are um, didactic so that the teaching of the church was often sung through female voices uh, this is very interesting because today in Aleppo you don't see women singing you hear women singing in the in the church itself. They would be sitting among worshipers and singing. You also hear them singing in the choir. Um, very often the choir uh, is led by a woman uh, who's a member of the church, but you rarely see them up front with the deacons, which is what um, uh, Ephraim the Syrian is, is known to have, have instituted in the church. So this is something that, that history has taken away from women in the church it has also taken away from them the ability to be high-ranking um, among the deacons. Uh, so that's, uh, that, that's actually the subject of one chapter where one particular woman, Aleppo, who's a very highly respected uh, teacher and, and um, uh, a, theolo- a theologian, somebody who works very hard, who studies things and who teaches um, and who emphasizes the role of women, says women need to be more actively present women need to be more visible and so that's always an interesting dynamic um, you're right in saying that this is um, uh, this is potentially a, a wider contextual thing but in some cases the smaller communities um, can have either more liberty more freedom to act as they wish in the in the privacy of their own settings, but sometimes they become more oppressed by these social norms, and so they, um, they find them hard to break. And in the, in the, um, the Sri neighborhood, I certainly found a combination of these two. Within the worship space, women's voices were always present, very present, very effective. In fact, the choir's uh, contributions wouldn't have been possible without the with women. Uh, but when you look at the altar, you don't see them. So the voices are there, but the but the women themselves are not visible. So this is something that I I thought was incredibly interesting um, to to kind of pursue and trace and and see the, the physicality the difference between you know the physical presence of a woman the physical presence of a woman's voice or of the female voice and the absence of of you know other forms of, of symbolism or, or cultural baggage associated with with being female and being. Visible, So that was an, an interesting thing to pursue in this particular place.
0: Let's um, turn now to the actual music for a moment. Um, uh, you spent um, a fair amount of time and energy um, trying to notate and transcribe some of the chants you were hearing, but also trying to think about how to, or if it was even appropriate, to find ways to take um analytical practices that were developed in the West for Western music and how to use those or not to use those when talking about this music. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what was your analytical approach? How did you deal with trying to transcribe an oral music, for instance, um, an oral tradition? And, you know, and, and and what did you draw upon to create uh, kind of your own way of, of thinking about this music, since you seem to feel like, Western, um, analytical frameworks weren't really, uh, enough for what you needed or appropriate perhaps is a better word.
1: Right. There wasn't, there wasn't an analytical framing that was, uh, that would have helped me. Uh, that's true. So, I mean, if we talk, if we're talking about analysis as music analysis, um, then that's, uh, that's a straightforward problem. Um, but even a wider analytical framework wasn't, uh, present. So, and this is for many reasons. I mean, just to start from the wider circles, the, the Middle East has, has, um, traditionally in scholarship being treated as, um, um, as, as, a monolithic kind of, you know, one place with, with one religion, with one kind of people. Got, I mean, thankfully that's changed and diversity is, is coming in, uh, into the scholarship of uh, uh, on the Middle East, um, at least since the 70s, things have been uh, changing in that direction. But there was still not enough attention to um, smaller groups, to um, various, um, uh, to, to the to the actual diversity of populations in the Middle East. So that was one problem. Um, the other was the lack of ethnographic studies on on Christian communities in the Middle East. Minority communities in general, but Christian communities in particular. Um, and then you can um, uh, look at that uh, in, in conjunction with the fact that Middle Eastern music is very different from Western music in terms of its um, scales, intervals, modes, whatever. You know, it's it it has to be thought about in very different ways. Um, Analytical terms, theoretical analytical terms, and so, for instance, when when you look at transcriptions of Middle Eastern music, um, there are intervals that that don't translate on the page easily to a Western um, uh, musical eye uh, because there are intervals that are, we can imagine them between the white keys and the black keys or between the two uh, um, adjacent white keys on the piano. So where do you fit these on the score? So there are symbols for these, but then even then, the the writing the, the the notation systems we have don't really indicate where exactly this interval falls. And to make it even worse, um, when you actually listen to the music, those intervals are never fixed. So how do you write that down? So all these things um, are part of trying to use the different tools or the available tools to to talk about a music. For which those tools were not developed, right? So it's like it's like bringing um, a, a measuring stick that doesn't fit the object you're trying to measure. Um, so how do you do that? This was one of the one of the main issues. I I did eventually use transcriptions, um, both for my own benefit because. As someone who came into learning about music through written music, I needed that tool to see things on the page, which, which again speaks to my own biases perhaps or to, to, to my own things I had to kind of struggle with and, and work around. Um, but it also uh, – so I used this tool, but it wasn't a goal um, in its own right. So my transcriptions, I try to say very clearly, are are tentative, are – as are, are symbolic are indicative are not finite and have many problems in fact in my opinion transcription has more problems than it solves uh, and is, and mine uh, are definitely included in that um so they're not to be taken as authoritative they're not to be taken as finite and i even um Uh, published them as handwritten transcriptions, because that's just what they are. They're sketches, they're drafts, uh, they're very, very, very imperfect tools. Um, And just like everything else we've used in Western music to try and study other musics from around the world, we had to develop things differently. In some cases, The notation systems were possible to change slightly to adjust in order to to reflect some of the characteristics of the music at hand. In some places, it wasn't possible at all. So in my case, I used them in a very limited way to make a very specific point um, that has to do with analyzing the musical system um, or whatever might be uh, thought of as a system system. Um, but also to show um, their own limitations and to use them as a tool to show the limitations of existing tools. And so, in the wider perspective of things, I think we need to look at all these other things: emotion, aesthetics, social setting, you know, the meaningfulness um, behind this, in order to understand how really people think analytically about the music.
0: Well, I have one very specific question. I just have to ask it because it just, I'm so curious about this. You were describing the Maundy Thursday service and, and said that they, at some point played Chopin's Funeral March and I th- I was just so curious of how Chopin could show up in this really important uh, service in Passion Week so you know and I think it's the only time you mentioned any kind of western music being part of their service so how did Chopin make a, a an appearance in in the Mahdi Thursday service do you know where that came from
1: I think this was uh, in the and uh, the uh- this was the Friday because it was the only recording I included that had the brass band. I mean, oh, excuse just, me. It's just a brass band piece, right? It's a piece that that sounds very that's easy to play on brass instruments uh, for you know with um, for musicians. I mean, for, for very amateur uh, musicians who um, who do this band as part of their. Um, a part of their general sort of activities as, uh, as boy or girl scouts. Um, and they, uh, and the, and this music is played outside the church. I mean, it's heard from inside the church. And, and, and I mentioned um, this particular piece because it's heard in one of the recordings. Um, but the repertoire of the, of the brass band ensemble, uh, includes many uh, pieces from around the world um, some of them classical some of them are very modern they sometimes compose their own they play pop pieces i mean it depends on the occasion and, and they do processionals they do marches you know they uh, they probably have some of the standard international repertoire
0: well, that does bring up, of course, that this is a living, uh, breathing community, not something that is set in stone for all time. And in fact, you do talk a bit about uh, some people in the community were trying to make some innovations in the musical and worship practices, and uh, which... You know, some were were sometimes a bit controversial. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of this? As um, you know, you're not just studying a tradition that has uh, remained perhaps relatively unchanged for a long period, but also something that is constantly uh, changing and developing over time.
1: Right. Yes. Absolutely. That's a very important point because. It is a living tradition, as, as you said, and it's part of people's everyday lives. So, whereas they love the fact that, that they can, you know, they, they say with pride that our music dates back to the early um, history of our church. In fact, some people take that to literally mean that they are still singing the very melodies that St. Ephraim taught uh, those girls. I mean, who knows? Um but this is the, the there's there's great pride in that, um, but at the same time, it's combined with the fact that people take this church as their today their church their identity now. They they want their children to be engaged. They want it to be interesting. They want it to be um, sophisticated and up to date and, and to be part of the, part of you know to be relevant to today's life. So that's a that's a that's a tension. Um, it's not only between the what seem to be conflicting ideas of you know preservation or, or or conservatism and development and evolution, but also between people who might espouse these you know these extremes or every every possible shade between them. Um, so yes, the choirs are, are are one of the places where this is most um, strikingly uh, manifested, at least in the in the neighbourhood. Um, one general movement is to hire professional uh, musicians to conduct the choir, uh, but when the professional musicians make changes to the music that uh, that are such that members of the community can't recognize it, so when a when a when a single melody becomes a, a four piece um, harmonized kind of. Uh, foreign type of sounds they they might reject it altogether but at the same time you want people who would like the music to be developed right so how do we do that so that's that's always that's an ongoing thing and extreme changes extreme sudden changes have um have elicited extreme reactions and so this was always this is a this is part of the ongoing history of, of this church at the time i was there they had um Uh, a conductor a professional musician conducting the choir um she was using multiple voices but she kept the melodies intact so she used a lot of uh, sort of imitation canons small intervals like thirds and fifths and not too much polyphony but just simple things going you know weaving into uh and to the end or out of middles of phrases and then coming back to the end, just enough to satisfy the people who want the music to be, you know, quote unquote evolving. Um, but also not to upset the people who don't want the music to be deformed, right. To be unrecognizable. Um, I, one comment I, I, I always remember as very, very indicative. Somebody said, well, if I wanted to hear Choirs. If I wanted to hear Bach music, I go to a concert hall to hear that. When I come to my church, I want to hear my church music. Perhaps as we're getting uh, close
0: here, here to the end of our interview, um, what really struck oh, one of the many things that struck me about this book, of course, is that you opened with it. Um, you know, acknowledging that the community that you study doesn't really exist anymore. That Aleppo is one of those cities that has been all but destroyed during the civil war, and you, of course, mentioned that in, in, uh, in the opening of this interview as well. Um, have you been able to keep up with the people that you spoke to and worked with when you were doing your field work? Do you have any idea of, you know, sort of how they're doing and, and um, how their neighborhood is, uh, you know, is it intact physically, that sort of thing? Can you talk a little bit about what's happened to them uh, since
1: the war started? Um, yeah. So the community, as as was the case in in every community around Syria, um, they have lost many of their members. Um, either, I mean, it's 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 a war. So war claims victims, and many victims have been claimed in this um, small uh, piece um, of 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 the of the country as a whole. Um, but what has actually um, Destroyed the community more. I mean, uh, destroyed. I say it in the sense that, I mean, it's th- it's there. I shouldn't be um, shouldn't be too negative about its current state because people are still living there. People are are insist on on continuing to exist. I mean, those are important words for them, and those are important notions. Um, but they would tell you that uh, many people are gone. The community community is certainly not what it was um, eight years ago. So in that sense, it's not the same. It's it, it, and it probably will never be the same because no, not everyone will go back. Um, and so that there are big gaps in the in the. In the you know demography of the place, um, there are also changes because um, during the conflict many people move uh, be, because of various forms of destruction in many places. So um, the, this small neighborhood is no longer mostly one color. It's gotten people from other communities who eventually came and lived there. Um, so demographically, it, it looks very different. Um, the church um, is much smaller in terms of the number of its people so many people are gone the the youth, the young um, generation I'm told has practically disappeared Um, people who just needed to go elsewhere to try and build new lives Um, so you might have small children or young families and you might have older people but everybody in between um, left, went elsewhere, so I am in touch with some people some of them are still there, some of them are elsewhere Most of the people I know who have left have um, had to leave as refugees. Um, So, um, I mean, whereas they remember their grandparents having come to Aleppo as refugees and having had to build um, communal life together uh, from nothing. um, Now they're finding themselves having to do the same only as individuals in various places of the world. So. Musically, I think that's um, that's going to have a huge impact um, because it's true when they travel, they travel with their music, they take their own chants with them. They probably go and find a, a Syriac church um, to join. But because they will be joining churches with various sort of um, backgrounds, their, their music will be mixed with these backgrounds. And so that is in, in danger of, not being the same anymore. So it's very interesting to also observe what's happening to that. And and I am in touch with people as much as I can. It's it's become easier after many of them have left. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's very different. It's a very, very different state.
0: So do you see, excuse me, do you see this book? Uh, certainly I'm sure you didn't start out this way, but do you see it now as maybe in some sense memorializing a practice that May not survive in this form for very much longer, um, given the challenges this community um, is facing right now.
1: Well, that's a very good question. Actually, I um, I realized in the process, and in fact, some of them have told me this. They they kept saying, "You need to." I mean, this book is going to be important because because it it. It witness it was a witness to a time that won't be going back I mean we all knew that the church's presence as a whole is deteriorating in the Middle East gradually but no one um, ever was able to to foresee this kind you know, this amount of destruction in this short period of time so in a sense my book ended up being a witness to a moment in time but I'm also hoping hoping that it's a it's an incentive to Um, to encourage people wherever they are to keep their um, traditions alive so they can understand what those traditions have meant to them growing up, to their parents and what they might mean to their children and to humanity as a whole because they're part of this just richness of how people do music in in beautiful ways and it's a very it has a very unique history it has a very particular sort of line of of development I'm hoping that my book will encourage these people to, to do to continue to to, or to continue to continue to carry their music um through difficult times but to also try and do it too so in new ways that might allow them to allow them allow them and it continuation in these circumstances but one has to know i mean one has to realize that they are people who are having to rebuild their lives i mean it's, it's not easy to be doing all that at the same time so um, it's um, it, it is a it is a, a, a worrying time and, and it's also a worrying time for people back um, in the in Syria Iraq uh, Turkey I mean there's a lot of pressure on these communities um, to survive to just manage to carry on and so it's it's even it's that much harder to keep these tr- traditions alive when the people themselves are struggling to maintain lives. So um, obviously
0: you have just finished up a huge project writing this book. What can we expect from you next? What are you working on now?
1: I'm actually working on several things. Uh, one of them is to, to try and develop this uh, this theoretical analytical approach um, in, a, in a wider sense. And that includes but is also concurrently going with uh, with with trying to expand my, word, my work, sorry, into other religious communities in Syria, because when I was in Aleppo, I also did some field work among uh, Muslim in Muslim circles, especially Sufi circles. So that's also a very interesting and very important um, musical tradition uh, or set of musical traditions that were um, lively and thriving and just in, with incredible historical significance in. Uh, in Aleppo um, and their members are now equally dissipated around the world, um, entire neighborhoods have been destroyed and so on. So, so I'm trying to revive some of my old uh, fieldwork and to, to put it in, in juxtaposition with, with current fieldwork uh, to see if something, um, to, to, to take an inter-religious look at, um, at religious music in Syria.
0: Well, this has been a wonderful talk. Thank you so much. And I hope that this has inspired some people to go out and uh, read your book, Sense and Sadness, Syriac Chants in Aleppo. And thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Kristen, for having me. This has been very, very nice. And thank you for your wonderful questions.